are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Take your Bibles, please, and open to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 3. First Samuel chapter 3. First Samuel chapter 3, verse number 1. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord. Did you hear that? He ministered unto the Lord. Now, he didn't have him down there wiping his brow, and he didn't have him down there wiping his feet or washing his feet like Martha did, perhaps, and Peter. And he did not have him there to feed him. But he ministered unto the Lord as he spake for the Lord on the Lord's behalf. Isn't it great you and I can minister to the Lord simply by giving out the Word of God to others that need it? Amen? Amen. That's not the message, but it's a good thought there. The child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. Now, here's what I want you to catch. I'm going to spend some time tonight talking about this phrase and enlarging upon it and giving you other Scripture about it. Listen to this. Don't miss it. And the Word of the Lord was precious in those days. The Word of the Lord was precious in those days. If there's ever been a time in the history of mankind when God's Word needs to be precious to God's people, it's now. Amen? Amen. We live in a time when it's scoffed at, made fun, and it's always been that way. It's not something that's brand new. But we live in a day and age when even our government has gone to Senate chambers and made decisions that the Word of God cannot be taught or brought up or mentioned in our school systems. Why? Because the Word of God is not precious today, except to very few people. And by the way, you say, yes, I know it's precious to church people. To be honest with you, it's precious even to very few church people. You say, well, it's precious mainly to fundamental Bible-believing, Christ-loving, Christ-honoring Christians. To be honest with you, it's precious even to fewer of those people. And if I want to get real honest with you, in just a moment as I develop this, you might find that the Word of God is not even precious to many in this building tonight. Last Eve, I paused behind the blacksmith door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers, worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he. And then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so, I thought, the anvil of God's Word, for ages skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet, though the noise of falling blows are heard, the anvil is unharmed. The hammers, they are gone. This book that I preached from this week, and this book which has been the foundation upon which your pastor has endeavored to build this church, this book... If the devil could, would go out of existence before the clock would strike midnight this evening. If there could be a giant book burning in every every village and every hamlet and every town and every city and, and every county and every state and every country, if they could tonight, there are those that in power that would stand and cheer as we were forced to come and throw these books that we call the Word of God into that fire and have them burn forever. But to some, thank God, this book is still precious. Amen? And I hope before the night is over 
that you and I will even endeavor to make it more precious to ourselves than it was before we walked in these doors here tonight. Precious. What do I mean by that word precious? I'm kind of fond of it. I kind of like it. Yeah, I kind of like Reader's Digest too. I kind of like old comic books that I used to read when I was a kid. I kind of like to read some articles in, in science magazines and popular mechanics. That's not the kind of preciousness I'm talking about where we just kind of like it. I'm talking about tonight where this book means more to us sometimes even than life would mean to us. Precious. You take great steps in preserving it and great steps in understanding it. When I was down in Los Angeles back in the early 70s, a man that was rather high up in the Bank of America system back in those days came to myself and Brother Carroll as the two of us traveled together around the country and said, Hey, how would you like to come and see something that almost nobody ever gets to see? I said, Well... Sure, I don't even know what it is, but if it's something that not anybody else much gets to see, I'd like to, I'd like to come see that. I'd like to come see something that's top secret. He said, we're going to go down several stories below the ground. And we're going to go into a special vault. He said, in this vault, there are all kinds of papers that are stored in that vault that could never be reduplicated. There are precious stones and, and precious minerals like diamonds and rubies and gold. And he said, there's money in that vault. He said, would you like to go see? I said, I'd love to. Man, we went to this elevator. Nobody else got to go in this elevator. It was not one that led to the different levels of the office building. But it was one that was accessed only by certain few people. Standing at the front of this elevator was a guard. As we approached the elevator door, the guard stood up from a little guard stand that uh, he, was, he was seated at there and walked over and he greeted this man. He knew him, of course. But even though he knew the man, he said, please show me your identification. The man reached into his wallet and pulled out this card. Had some hologram kind of design on it so that it could not easily be reduplicated by a counterfeiter. And he showed it to the fella. The guy looked at the picture ID. And he looked at the man. And he looked at us and he said, Who are these gentlemen that are with you? He said, These are my friends. I'm taking them with me down to level. And he said, A certain level meant something to the guard. Did not mean anything to me. The fella said, Okay. And then he took the card, handed it back to the man that was taking us down to this level. And that man took the card and placed it inside a little slot about that wide, a credit card size slot. He pushed it in, a little light came on and indicated it was time to pull it out. He pulled the card out and the doors opened up and we got on the elevator. We turned and when we got on the elevator, the doors shut behind us so that we were enclosed in this little cubicle thing, the elevator. There were no buttons there like 414243, but there was an array of buttons like a telephone. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and a zero. And a voice said, Please enter your code. Now, wait a minute. A guard had identified him from a picture ID. We placed the card. The elevator door opened up and let us in. But that wasn't good enough. Now we had to enter a code. I asked him, I said, what would happen if you didn't get to push that code in there right? He said, we wouldn't go anywhere. And somebody would be here in just a second to find out what I'm doing in this elevator, not knowing the codes. He pushed in the codes, I had five or six numbers uh, code, and the elevator began to descend. The doors opened up. Two guards were standing there when the doors opened up. I, I thought I'd gone back in some scientific film somewhere and I was trying to access some secret formula that's going to destroy the world or, or some, some germ warfare or something. All there was down there were precious stone and money and, and, and minerals and gold and, and diamonds and rubies and stuff like that. That's all. Millions and millions and millions of dollars worth, by the way. 
The guards came over. Again, a photo ID. We went through another door. Again, entered the card. Again, another number, access number. And we went into another large room. Through the room, several guards there, was a gigantic door. Big, huge cylinders about this big around that had been retracted back inside the door. And at night, they they came out and, and went inside big holes about that big and secured the door when it was locked. He said something to the guard. And the guard said, yes, sir. And he went over to a control panel and pushed some buttons. And I said, what's he doing? Man, I was beginning to get a little bit concerned. Where was I going? Would my mother ever see me again? He said he's disarming one of the security systems. He said when that one is disarmed... Another guy will disarm a second security system. It has to be done in sequence or there's trouble. I said, well, what's the first alarm? He said, the first alarm, inside the vault, there are beams that are shining from the ceiling down to the floor. And there are beams that are shining from wall to wall that crisscross in there. So that if you walked inside there, you can't see them. He said, but if you walked inside there, and by your moving through the beams, it would break the beams. Alarms would go off all over the city. He said, he's shutting off the beams. I said... What's the second alarm? He said there are heat sensors in there. And if we walked in, our body heat would be sensed. And another alarm would go off. He said, and there's another one. I said, what's the third alarm? He said, there's a sensor in the floor that detects weight. I thought, boy, I'd really set that one off. (laughs) Detects weight. And he said, that's the last one that they shut off. They shut off the beams, they shut off the heat sensors, and then they shut off the the thing that detects weight. He said, you see, if you try to just sneak in here at night, even if you bored a hole through the thing somehow, the beams would catch you. If the beams didn't catch you, your heat from your body would would betray you. And if that wasn't enough, when your foot set down on the floor, that would get you. He said, trust me, nobody's going to get inside this vault without somebody knowing about it. Walked inside there and he pulled open this drawer, absolutely filled to the rim with diamonds. Shut the thing back. Guards are standing out there watching every move. Then he said, how would you like to hold more money than you've ever seen in your life? I said, for how long? I said, I'd love to hold it. He said, stick out your arms. So Brother Carol and I stood there with our arms held out like someone was stacking them full of wood for a fireplace. And he began to stack piles of money. It was, I was holding it like this. It heaped up over in front of my face. I'm here holding it. It's getting kind of heavy. He said, you're holding almost half a million dollars. I thought, I don't care if it's heavy. I'll just take it home anyhow. I can make it. I'll, I'll sacrifice. And we looked at all the doodads and oohed and odd for a while. But when we left there, guess what came out? Only what went in. Nothing else. I didn't even... You know how you go to some of these places, they give you samples? Not even a sample. Can't believe how rude they were. Walked out of there. And he said, in case you don't know, he said there are some precious treasures in that vault. That's why we go to all that extent to preserve those precious treasures. Do you know what? You and I have in our possession tonight, either here with us or perhaps in our car or maybe at home, But I would doubt that anybody is in this room tonight that does not have somewhere a copy of the Word of God. And if you don't have one, you come see the preacher. And before you walk out tonight, I'm sure we could get you one or or help you to know where to go get one. But you know, as readily available as the Bible is, it's much more precious than those diamonds. It's much more 
precious than that gold. It's much more precious than that half a million dollars that I was straining to hold in my arms. Why? The Bible says that His Word has always been and always will be and always is there for us in our present life. Thy Word is settled in heaven, the Bible says, how long? Forever. That means there's never been a time in the past and never been a time in the future and there's not a time in the present when the Word of God has not been. The Word of God is eternal. It's precious. Yet some of us don't know why. Why would we consider the Bible tonight to be precious? Why would we say with young Samuel that the Word of the Lord was precious in those days? I'll tell you why. First of all, this book right here, the Word of God, keeps its promise. The predictions by the lunatics that come out the beginning of the year, all these psychics, they don't keep their promises. Here's what they say. I predict that somebody's going to die this year. Wow, stick your neck out. I mean, really, go out on a limb. Make a big prediction here, sister. But the Bible never breaks its promise. The Bible tells us, and you don't have time tonight, and we won't try I'm going to try to keep this thing trimmed, streamlined down here tonight, but we won't have time to look all these up. But let me say this to you. Psalm 119, 105. It says that the Bible, it is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. Why is it precious? I'll tell you why. God says, I don't care what time that you're trying to find your way through dark valleys, and it may seem like you're even walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He said, my word is a lamp under your feet and a light under your path, cling to its pages. I'll show you the way I want you to go. You know, I listen to guys preach about uh, full-time Christian service and so forth. But at least in my life, and I don't know that it's always this way, and I'm not even saying it has to be this way, but in my life, it was the Word of God itself that finalized my call to be a preacher of the Gospel. As I sought what God wanted me to do, it became a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. I remember I told you the other night, fell down on my knees next to my bed, and I said, Lord, I don't know what you want me to do. I, I'm in Bible college. I'm preparing for full-time Christian service, but I'm not sure what you want me to do. I kind of think you want me to be a preacher, but I don't want to be. Didn't want to be a preacher. I wanted to go to church like this and, and just sit in the pew and help a pastor like your pastor. Maybe be a deacon or something, or lead the singing, or work with the youth department uh, like this couple does over here. But I wasn't sure. I, I did not want to be a preacher. That night on my knees next to the bed, I just flipped it open. And I don't recommend and normally that you have devotions helter-skelter like that, just flipping through the Bible. But I flipped it open and this verse jumped out at me like a neon sign. I just said, God, I really don't want to be a preacher. And Luke chapter 6, verse 46 jumped out there. And here's what it said. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I said, oh, I guess I better go ahead and settle this matter about being a preacher then, huh? And that night on my knees, this Bible God used as a lamp under my feet to show me He wanted me to be a preacher. I don't have time tonight. If I could, I could tell you that every time that God has ever moved me into a ministry, it's been because of opening up this book and a verse that God gave to me at that time to lead me the next step in my Christian walk. And it's that way for everybody in this room, by the way. But you say, well, God doesn't lead me that way. I'll tell you why. Not many of God's people spend much time looking for the pathway. We spend a lot more time watching television. We spend a lot more time reading even newspapers. And I'm not against that. But let me tell you something. If you must make a choice, your time is so limited that you either have time to read the paper or time to read the Bible, throw the paper in the garbage and read the Bible. I'm not saying it has to be that way. And I think you have time maybe to read both of them. But a lot of people say, well, I just don't have time to read the Bible. Then cut something out. You're too busy. It's a lamp under our feet and a light under our path. It teaches us what God wants us to do.
I won't go into all the things tonight, but it shows us in the Bible some things that we ought to avoid and some things that we should do. It cautions the man or woman that's not yet married. It says, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Pastor and I could parade ladies across this platform all night that we've known over the years that we've been Christians that disobeyed that one verse. Their lives are absolute travesties tonight. They've got drunken husbands that have forbidden them to go to church. They've got husbands that go out and spend all their money on drugs and booze and wickedness and immorality and don't even bring enough money home to feed the children at night. I recall helping a, a woman up in the seat of Wisconsin those five weekends that Brother Carroll and I were there in that little small church in the seat of Wisconsin. Her husband had come home at night after she had gotten saved and she had even wanted to bow and, and say a word of prayer for the meal and he'd fly into a rage. And many times I've seen her with black eyes and bruises on her arms and I've said, what happened? She said, my husband had forbidden me to read the Bible and he caught me reading the Bible one night when he came home and he beat me up. She said, the worst thing I ever did in my life was to disregard my mom and my dad and my preacher. When I married an unsaved man and I told him it didn't matter, he'd come along after a while. Sometimes they do come along after a while, thank God. But oftentimes they do not. The Word of God is a lamp under our feet and a light under our path that said, Young ladies, don't do that. Why would you want to marry a man and together conceive and bring into this world a child and there you are wanting the child to be reared for the Lord and you've got a husband that's teaching that boy or that girl how to be a heathen? And chances are those children will go into eternity without Christ because a daddy's influence of an unsaved man was more powerful than what they might consider little sissy mom and her crutch of a religion. And it happens all the time. So you're picking on... I'm, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just wanting to show you. And that's just one powerful example of how the Bible is a lamp under our feet and a light under our path. And it says very boldly, come this way. Don't go that way. Come this way. But time and time again we say, I see the path and I see the light, but I don't care. I'm going my own direction anyhow. You know why? The book is not precious to you. That's why. If it was precious, you would want to obey it. Why is it precious? Because it keeps its promise. Why is it precious? Because it keeps you clean. And I don't mean uh, uh, dial soap and antiperspirant type of I don't mean that kind of clean. I mean spiritually and morally, it keeps you clean. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. If, if that was the only reason you had to memorize the Bible, that's enough. Amen? There's other reasons why. But the Bible says one of the main benefits of memorizing this book is it'll keep you from sin. You'll know the Bible. The Holy Spirit will use the Word of God to convict you not to do something wrong that the devil is trying to tempt you to do. Did you notice that when Jesus was tempted of the devil, turn over there sometime when you get home and read in Matthew chapter 4 about the temptation of Christ. Every time the devil tempted the Lord, the Lord who is all-knowing, the Lord who is God, the Lord who is all-powerful, the Lord who is omnipresent, did not use His intellect as God to defeat the devil. Here's what he used. Every time the devil tried to get him to sin, Jesus said, It is written! And quoted the Bible to the devil. Do you know why he did that? I'll tell you why. Because we are not intellectually able to defeat the devil. We are not even in our strength and our might able to defeat the devil. But every person in this room, when you're confronted with wickedness, can say, It is written. It is written. It is written. And abstain from falling into wickedness. Thank the Lord that Jesus used that as an example to me tonight. And an example to you this evening. 
You young boys and you young men in this room and teenagers, and the devil has unleashed his wickedness against you in an awful way. I don't know a time to be alive as a teenager, maybe, where it might be more difficult to live a holy life than today. I don't know a time to be alive as a single young adult that might be more difficult to stay true to God than today with all the wickedness and evil that is out there at every stand and every turn. But even though it is more wicked than maybe than ever at any other time in the history of mankind, what worked in Matthew chapter 4 for Jesus, young men will work for you, young ladies will work for you, young adults will work for you. Just get this book in your heart that you might say when confronted by the devil to do something wrong, you'll have it here and you'll be able to say, It is written. It is written. It is written. The most powerful statement you can make to the devil is that statement there. It is written. And then quoting that verse out of the Word of God, that's like a flaming sword to do him asunder and put him back on the place where he belongs on the run back home, which, by the way, someday shall be hell forever. He keeps his promise. It'll keep you clean. It will also calm your heart. Psalm 116 verse 165 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Do you know what would help every marriage in this building tonight? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, because then that means I'd have to raise my hand and we'd all be confessing it together. I'll just go ahead and tell you, my hand would have to be raised. And you can just go ahead and nod at me saying, yeah, preacher, mine would too when I ask you this question. Now, don't raise your hand, but if I ask you tonight, raise your hand, everybody in this room, every husband and wife who's ever had an argument with each other that ended up you got mad and you pouted. Let me ask you, I will ask you this question. How many men in this room, when you get mad and you and your wife kind of fuss, you pout? Raise your hand. Mine's up. I'm a powder. Yep. How many men you don't pout, you spout off? Raise your hand. Chris, I'm ashamed of you. <laughs> you spout off. And then you say something a little bit later. Boy, I wish I wouldn't have said that. was stupid. How many wives in this room, when you and your husband get a little, little tizzy, you pout? Raise your hand. Silence sets, silence sets in, which the men sometimes like. But not for as long as you stay silent. I mean, four or five months at a time is out of hand here. But you know what? The Bible says, Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. In other words, God said, I know you well enough to know that there's going to be some arguments down there. But don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Get it fixed before you go to bed at night. You know what the Bible says? Great peace have they, pouting husband, who love thy law, and nothing, not even a wife, shall offend you. The next time your husband gets offended at your wife, open up Psalm 116, where you have highlighted verse number 165, lay it down on the coffee table in front of him and just sort of walk out of the room going, ha, Because <laughs> you know what we're admitting when we sit there pouting? We are admitting that we have not spent time in this book like we should. If we did, nothing would offend us. By the way, you wouldn't get mad at anybody else in this room if you'd love this book the way you ought to love it. Your heart would be calm. You wouldn't be sitting around pouting. The reason we sit around and pout, and the reason we sit around down the dumps, and the reason we sit around mad, and the reason we sit around seething on the inside and say, Boy, I don't get mad, I get what? Even, yeah. Every man in this room is familiar with that thing. If you have not gone to that land, you've headed toward that land before. I'm going to get him. Maybe you never did get him, but you enjoyed thinking about it. 
God said, if you love my book the way you're supposed to love the book, you wouldn't feel that way about your boss. You wouldn't feel that way about the fellow church member. You wouldn't feel that way about your husband. You wouldn't feel that way about your wife. You wouldn't feel that way about your son. You would not feel that way about your daughter. You would not feel that way about the pastor. And you wouldn't feel that way about the evangelist. Heavy on that last statement. But all over America, marriages are destroyed and broken and ruined and destroyed. Why? Because one or both of the spouses involved get offended. And they don't run to the book and their ways are not cleansed as the psalmist said it would be. And destruction sets in. Children will not talk to parents because of that same kind of destruction. He should have done this for me and he didn't. And mom should have left this to me and dad should have put me in the will. And my, this and that and the other. My brother did this and my sister did this. All over America, there are families that won't get together in the same room because somebody's miffed at the other one. Taylor would put a stop to all that nonsense. And I said nonsense. Great peace have they which love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. If I had not learned that lesson as a young preacher years ago, I would not still be in the ministry tonight. I would have quit a long time ago. You know why? Because somebody has made me mad since I started preaching back in 1968. I guarantee it. Somebody has made me mad. And I guarantee you, I've made folks mad. You can't talk as much as we talk without making somebody mad. When you run your mouth off as much as we run our mouths off, somebody's going to find something that they don't agree with. Matter of fact, I've listened to some of my tapes and I said, I don't believe that. <laughs> Stupid idiot, what did you say that for? <laughs> There's a reason for us to go. And by the way, if there's a reason for me to go, and there's a reason for your preacher to go, there might be one or two reasons why you ought to go as well. Am I right? Am I a dog barking up an empty tree here? Of course I'm right. Edit the thing to make it where I believed it still. Well, I'd like to beg you tonight to get into this book and make it precious to you. And let the Word of God give you a peace in your heart like Valium and tranquilizers could never hope to give you. Why should I make it precious, Brother Davis? It keeps His promise. It keeps you clean. It keeps your heart calm. By the way, kind of a just a something that makes sense here, this book here, it's scientifically correct. It's just, it's just scientifically, scientifically correct. You know, Preacher and I were talking today about some of our minors and so forth when uh, we were in college. I, I had two minors. I minored in, in uh, speech and minored in history. Uh, I love history. One of the things I like to, like to read about in history are the early beliefs of the early scientific community. Do you know that they actually believed that the earth rested on the back of a man by the name of Atlas? They actually taught that in the early universities. I always wondered, what in the world did Atlas stand on? <laughs> well, they hadn't thought that far. They said, Atlas was tearing the world around on his shoulders. They really believed that. They made fun of the Bible. They scoffed at the Bible. That early scientific community, they said the Bible is not true. Because the Bible did not encompass that teaching there that the universities taught. By the way, very much has, very little has changed. The Bible still doesn't teach much that the universities believe today either. They're still just as ignorant as they were back in the early days, only more so. The Bible says, ever learning, ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of truth. The Bible says, in Job 26, 7, you need not turn there, you might want to make that notation, what the, what the Bible said about the earth sitting on the back of Atlas. The Bible said, He hangeth the earth upon nothing. Now, which was true? 
Science or the Bible? The Bible was. And when that was written, the primary teaching of the day was there was the earth sitting on the back of some strong man. The Bible said, no, 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 no. He hangeth the earth upon nothing. You say, well, of course everybody believes that today. I know today, but the Bible said that before they believed it. Something else. When Columbus discovered America... In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You all remember what the date was from that little poem. When he left on that journey, some of his friends begged him not to go because they said, the earth is flat and you're going to fall off into the mouth of a dragon. He said, I'm going. And he discovered America. <laughs> didn't fall over the mouth of a dragon. The earth was not flat, but they taught that in the universities in the 1400s. The Bible says in Isaiah 40, 22, it is He that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The Bible said the earth is not flat. You bunch of dingbats down there at the University of Alexandria. The, Bible's not, the, the Bible said the earth is not flat. Well, what is it then? It's a circle. They said, oh, you bunch of... How can it be a circle? Their premise was, there's water out there. See the water? Yeah. See the ocean? Yeah. If the earth was a circle, the water would fall off. That's what they used to teach. So they said it has to be flat, because if it's not flat, the water would fall off. The Bible said, I don't care what you teach, university professor. The Bible says that he sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And of course, we now have snapshots from the moon taken back toward the earth. And just as the Bible said, way back yonder, and by the way, even longer than way back yonder, before mankind was ever born, the Word of God was settled in heaven, the Word of God says, it always has said that the earth is a circle. Thank you, Mr. Astronaut, for just proving another part of the Bible which is true. I remember reading... When I was studying history, there was a gigantic uproar about a city mentioned in the book of Exodus chapter 1. The city is Pithom, P-I-T-H-O-M. They said, oh, there's no city named Pithom anywhere, bunch of idiots. You, you people that believe the Bible, you believe there's a city by the name of Pithom. You're stupid. Well, lo and behold, they were excavating one day in the area where the Bible said there was a city by the name of Pithom. And they found a city underneath that rubble. And as they began to examine how they put the city together, they said, it's kind of puzzling, not only is there a city here where the Bible said there was a city, but you know, the bricks are different than the rest of the bricks that we find back in this era. Most of the bricks are made from a mixture of clay and straw. Now this city, some of the houses started off with a mixture of clay and straw, but the rest of them have no straw mixed in with the clay. That's kind of strange. Mr. Scientist, it's not strange when you read in Exodus chapter 5 where Pharaoh said to the taskmasters, give them no more straw to mix with their clay, but make them still produce as much work as they always have. And if not, lay the whip to their backs. And so they had to go on and produce the rest of the housing with no straw. Exodus chapter 5. Look at it when you get home. It's there. And the scientists scratched their heads and said, Oh, well, I guess we're wrong about the city of Pithom. Here it is. We just found it. Yeah, dingbat. And everything else in the Bible that you don't think is true, you're going to find to be true one of these days also. When you stand before God Almighty and have His eternal eyes looking into your soul. It's true. Scientifically correct. Prophetically correct. 
The Bible said the place of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be a place called Bethlehem. That's where He was born. They said He's going to be of the lineage of King David. That was the lineage from which He came. They said He's going to be born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin. They said He would die with no broken bones. Read the Gospel of John when you get home tonight. The crucifixion account there. And you'll see where the soldiers came and the two thieves that were hanging on either side of Christ, they came by and they broke their legs. But when they came to Christ, He was already dead and they did not break His legs. If they had broken his legs, he would have not have prophetically fulfilled what the Word of God said the Messiah was going to be. They said the Messiah would not have any broken bones. And thank God, he did not have any broken bones. Read it. It's in there. They said he'd be pierced. When they came by to check and see if he was dead, one of the soldiers took a spear and thrust it into his side. And the Bible said, blood mingled with water came forth, which was an indication, doctors tell me, that he had died long enough that the separation process of the body fluids had begun to set in. And when they stabbed him in the side, the blood and the water came flowing out of that one wound. It's pro prophesied in the Bible. They said He'd rise again on the third day. He rose again on the third day. And we could go on and give you dozens more. But I think you've gotten the hint tonight that the Bible is prophetically accurate. Now I have a question to ask you. Is the Bible precious? Let me tell you how precious the Word of God is says the Bible is to God Himself. You might want to take note on this reference here. Psalm 138, verse 2. You don't need to turn there. You might want to write it down and look it up when you get home. Psalm 138, verse 2. And it says, The Lord has magnified His Word above His name. That's quite a statement. This book that you and I hold in our hands tonight, or is, is there on our lap this evening, or sitting there next to us on our pew tonight, the Word of God says that God has magnified this Word higher than His own name. And let me tell you how precious God's name was. His name was so precious, especially back in the Hebrew days, that they would not even pronounce His name for fear of pronouncing it incorrectly. That's got a pretty high regard for a name. And God said, as high regard as that is, my word is higher than the name. This book we have in our hands tonight, or that our eyes have looked together upon this evening, has been handed down into our hands because of tremendous sacrifice. Tremendous sacrifice. As you have probably in studying about things of the Lord and biographies that might have entailed this story, I also read this. The great atheist, Tom Paine, had his man on his printing press run off some flyers, much like your pastor ran off this week to invite folks out to the meeting. And these flyers said, come down to this certain gathering place that held a few thousand people. And tonight... I will make an address to prove the Bible is not the Word of God. Well, the flyers were distributed, and by the hundreds and thousands they came, packed out that big giant hall, had balconies in it, main floor. Mr. Payne made his way up to the platform and walked out behind a lecture. And he stood and began to make his appeal and all of his arguments as to why the Word of God could not be true and was not, in fact, the Word of God. 
about halfway through his speech and feeling kind of brave and a little bit frisky, he stopped and said, Who here in our midst tonight would dare stand and call my reasoning into question? Who would dare stand up tonight and debate me on this great question? Is the Bible the Word of God? I dare you, speak! A little time elapsed and he stood there for dramatic effect in the silence that swept over that place in might. And all of a sudden the historians tell us that a young lady in the upper part of the balcony stood. The people around her wondered what would she say. Her voice would not even be loud enough to be heard way down on the platform where Mr. Payne was. And even if her voice was able to be heard, what could she possibly say to engage this brilliant mind in a debate? But she did not use words of debate to engage him. They tell us that she simply stood and in a very clear, beautiful, high soprano voice, she began to sing, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. While she was singing, so was like electricity ran out through the congregation. And as she got down to that next line, dozens jumped to their feet. And they began to sing, Lift high His royal banner! And by now, hundreds and even more than half the crowd were standing. And they joined in that last refrain, It must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory His army doth He lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. And when they finished singing the last stanza of that song together, someone turned to see what the great debater was going to say and he was not anywhere in the building to be found. By the way, that machine that he used to run off the flyers to say, come down there and hear me teach why the Bible's not the Word of God. That very same printing press was used sometime after that meeting to print the Word of God. <laughs> Precious. Precious. Precious was the Word of God in those days. Do you know what? I don't know how it will happen. Do you know what I want to happen? I sure pray and plead and beg the Lord and I spent much of this afternoon just kind of saturating myself with these thoughts that I'm bringing to you tonight. I would want the Lord to look back on 1991 and have Him be able to say, the Word of the Lord was precious in those days. It's not right now. But it could be if you and I would just get back to it the way we should. I want to give you a little challenge. And then I'm going to close. And our meetings will be through for this year. I have what is called the classic note Bible that I, I, I use when I preach. Normally, now, the last three sermons I've preached this week, I, I've not preached anywhere before. I, God gave them to me for here. This sermon is time preaching for the first time in my life. And so it's in my notebook. But normally... In this book that I have here, there's a, a page of the Bible and then an empty page where you can put notes in, in the Bible. It's, it makes it kind of thick, but if you like to write a lot of notes and study and so forth, it really is good. But generally, I use the old Schofield, King James Version of the Bible that I, I, I read from normally. I use this when I preach. 
And I don't know about the pages here. I have not taken time to look at them, but the pages in the Old Schofield, King James Version, Old Schofield Bible, what I'm about to tell you is pretty accurate. If you wanted to make the Bible precious to your life, you know what that means you're going to do? It means you're going to read it. You know what? I'm looking to the faces of people all over this auditorium tonight who have yet, ever in your life, to read the Bible through even one time. I'm not rebuking you for that. I mean, it looks like an awesome task. I mean, look at that thing. Give me a regular, give me a regular Bible. Give me a regular one. It's not much. <laughs> this is worse than mine. But it looks like a looks like a tremendous. You read that through? Are you kidding? I could never read the Bible through in a lifetime. <laughs> My old school field Bible that I have at home, I took the pages, divided them by the number of days in a year, and you know what I discovered? I discovered that that awesome task of reading the Bible through in a year, perhaps, could be done if the Bible even meant this much to you right here. If it meant enough to you to read four pages per day. That's all. Four pages per day. And an average reader can read a page in the Bible in about two, maybe three minutes, if you're a little slower than average. That means eight minutes a day reading the Bible will get you through the Bible in a year's time. Now, unless you're handicapped with a reading problem, I don't see anybody in this room who has learned how to read. Some of the younger ones, maybe that are still in school, maybe not. But those of us that have learned how to read, I don't look at anybody here tonight that couldn't read the Bible in a year. But you know why we don't? The devil sold us a bill of goods that, well, that's too much to read in a year. I'd have to read. I'd be reading all the time. Yeah, you'd be reading uh, 10 minutes a day. How horrible. Well, that's just a fanatic. I mean, he ought to lock you up in a Looney Tune farm. 10 minutes a day reading the Bible. That's fanatical. 10 minutes a day to get you through this book in a year's time. You hear that? Let that get your heart. 10 minutes a day. If you read 12 pages a day, you read the Bible through once every quarter. Three times a year. Now, if you really want to be a lunatic, I mean, if, you really, if you want to jump off the deep end and go down as crazy as Charles Manson, let me give this next statistic here. If you read 44 pages a day, you could read the Bible through one time every month. You cannot, you can too, because I've done it for years. A bunch of Hiles Anderson students got together one day and said, the people were saying, ah, you can't read the Bible that fast. They said, okay. They got a whole bunch of preacher boys. And they said, let's just, you, know, you take the first hour, you take the second, take the third. And they divided up among themselves. They started reading the Bible. And reading it through at a conversation speed, just reading the Bible out loud, they read it through in 68 hours. Just You could read the Bible out loud in 68 hours. And at that speed, if you just spend one, and one hour a day, maybe a little bit more, hour, hour and ten minutes a day, you could read it through every two months. But we won't, or we will, depending upon how precious this book is to us tonight. Many stories come to us out of countries that are taken over by the communist. Most of them horrible. as is the story I'm about to tell you. On the Lord's Day, 
in disobedience to the communist takeover regime, a band of Christians met together in a little abandoned church building out in the country. And the pastor dared to stand and preach the Bible. How dare he be engaged in such wrongful activity? Word came to some of the soldiers what was going on, and they said, well, we'll just show them what we're, we think about that. We'll put a stop to that mess right now. They marched out there. In the midst of the service, while the preacher was preaching out of the Word of God, they stormed in the back door, disrupted the service. The man that was in charge of the army troop that was there in that building went up there and grabbed the Bible out of the preacher's hand. Went outside and threw it down on the porch. Right at the top of the stairs where people walked down to get to the outside yard. And he placed a couple of his men with guns and bayonets on either side of the Bible. And he said, when you walk out of this room today, spit on that Bible or die. I'll show you how much you love the Lord. People were terrified. By the way, don't be hard on the people. What would we do in that same circumstance? And one by one, they walked out of that building. They looked at the Bible. Well used, tattered and worn. Leather cover on the preacher's old book. Pages kind of ruffled on the end and frayed. Then they looked on either side of the Bible and saw those big soldiers standing there with guns and bayonets. And one by one, though their heart broke, but not knowing what to do and confused about what they were willing to do, they walked by the book. And one by one, broken-hearted on the inside, They took turns spitting on the Bible. Almost the very last one out. Little girl, 12 years old. She was weeping. She was sobbing. Her heart was broken. Oh, she loved her pastor. This week we've been around some of the different families and I've enjoyed watching the little kids go over and hug the preacher and say, I love you, Pastor. She loved her pastor. She loved Jesus. And she loved that book. She got over to where others had paused and had spat upon the living, eternal Word of God. And that little girl reached down while the soldiers watched with nothing but disdain in their eyes. And she picked up that book. She took the hem of her little dress. She began to wipe the cover. And the spittle that had collected upon the cover of that book. And then she held the book in front of her. kissed him and waited to be put to death. The commander of that ruthless group of soldiers came over and jerked the Bible out of her hand. He said, All of you, get over there and line up! And they all went and stood in a long line. He said, We're going to start over again. He said, we'll start with you and gave it to the first one in the line. And that person took the book and kissed it, handed it to the next and to the next and to the next. And I don't know but what it was God's holy angel of protection or not, but the man became so enraged at what had happened to him, he felt personally humiliated by what took place. 
He screamed at his men and the soldiers and said, Let's get out of here. And stormed away. Nothing was left to indicate the shame they had cast upon the book but the stain that was on the little girl's hem of her dress where she had taken the spittle and wiped it off. This book is precious. Would to God the word of the Lord could be heard someday when we assemble in heaven and he perchance recounts 1991. Wouldn't it be wonderful he could say about Lompoc Valley Baptist Church the word of the Lord was precious in those days. Boy, we spend millions of dollars to protect the gems and the gold and the money. How well we would be served to also hide away the contents of this book in our hearts. Thy word is precious. Is it? And if it is, does it not deserve more of our time? Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNVBC.com for Christian music you can trust. 